Chapter 26 of The Goddess a Demon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jean Clare. The Goddess a Demon by Richard Marsh. Chapter 26 The Legacy of the Scarlet Hands. We could do nothing for him. The shock of the surprise for a moment held us motionless. But as soon as we realized that the man was being hacked to death before our eyes, we rushed to his assistance. It was of no avail. Death had, probably, been instantaneous. So much mercy the creature showed. A sharp-pointed blade, more than eighteen inches long, which proceeded from its stomach, had pierced him through and through. The writhing, gibbering puppet held him skewered in a dozen places. To have released him, we should have had to tear him into pieces. When I tried to drag him free, I only succeeded in bringing the whole thing over. Down he came, with his assailant sticking to him like a limpet. Pinning him onto the floor, it continued its extraordinary contortions, lacerating its victim with every movement in a hundred different places. It was difficult to believe that it was not alive. Perceiving that it was not to be persuaded by any other means to loosen its embrace, I struck it on the back, again and again, with a heavy wooden chair. Presently it was still. Its movements ceased. It became again inanimate. As if its lust for blood was glutted, it rolled over, lethargically, upon its side, leaving its handiwork exposed, a horrible spectacle. A grin, as it were a smile, born of repletion, was on the creature's face. Later, the thing was torn to pieces, its anatomy laid bare. Examination showed that its construction had been diabolically ingenious. It was simply a light steel frame, shaped to resemble a human body, to which was attached a number of strong springs, which were set in motion by clockwork machinery. The whole had been encased in scarlet leather, so that, when completed, it resembled nothing so much as an artist's lay figure. In the leather were innumerable eyelet holes. Through each of these holes the point of a blade was always peeping. So soon as the clockwork was set in motion, each of these blades leaped from its appointed place and continued leaping ceaselessly to and fro till the machinery ran down. In the head was an arrangement somewhat on the lines of a phonograph. It was from this proceeded the sound resembling a woman's gentle laughter, which was not the least eerie part of its horrible performance. Inquiries seemed to show that the creature had originally been intended for sacrificial purposes, Lawrence had apparently purchased it at Allahabad, probably from the workshop of a native who was suspected of the manufacture of contrivances whose ingenuity was almost too conspicuous, which were used in the temples. On certain days, such a puppet would be produced by the priests with a flourish of trumpets. One could easily believe that miraculous power would be claimed for it. It was even likely that, as a proof of the substantiality of these claims, it would go through its gruesome performance in the presence of the assembled congregations. Of what might have been the objects on which it exhibited its powers, one did not care to think. Some queer things still take place in India. Edwin Lawrence could hardly have been perfectly sane when he purchased such a plaything. It was not a possession which a perfectly healthy-minded man would have cared to have had at any price, and Lawrence must have paid an enormous sum for it, or that wily native would never have allowed such a curio to leave his hands. It was shown that the brothers had been in the habit of quarreling their whole lives long. Edwin would do something to arouse Philip's passion, whereon Philip would attack him with unreasoning violence. The fit of fury passed, and the mischief done, repentance came. 
In these moods, Philip must have expended thousands of pounds in his attempts to soothe the feelings of the brother whom he had just been battering. One of these scenes had taken place just before Edwin's departure for India. It was the usual plaster which had enabled him to start upon his travels. That his brother's treatment of him rankled, there was scarcely room for doubt. The purchase of the scarlet puppet was, probably a first fruit, of his morbid brooding. At the very last, possibly, the crime had been the result of a moment's impulse, as he himself had said, but that it had been prepared for, as likely to happen some time, was clear. He had obtained a suit of clothes, which was exactly like those which his brother was in the habit of wearing. These he secreted in his bedroom. So soon as his goddess had done her work, he stripped what was left of his brother bare, an awful task it must have been. He arrayed the body in a suit of his own clothes, oblivious of the fact that they showed no signs of the cutting and the hacking, and the suit which he had prepared he himself put on. Whether or not he saw me, or even if I was actually there to see, is not clear to this day. But either he did not notice the departure of his lady visitor, or he was indifferent to what it might portend. Under the circumstances, after the tragedy had actually taken place, his movements were marked by curious deliberation. The probability is that the catastrophe finally overturned the brain whose equilibrium was already tottering. No other hypothesis can adequately explain the manner in which he retained his self-possession, expecting every moment that the alarm would be raised and that he would be caught red-handed. Not only did he make himself up to resemble as much as possible his brother, but, rolling the goddess up in a cloth, he bore the blood-stained puppet out with him into the street. It was that which Turner had seen him carrying, under the impression that he was himself the man who was at that moment lying on the floor of his room, a mutilated corpse. As, by sight, Turner knew both men well, the fact that he mistook one man for the other shows that the imitation must have been well and carefully done. No action was taken against Mr. Isaac Bernstein. Except the dead man's words, there was no evidence against him in that particular. But that the tale told of him by Edwin Lawrence was true, and that he had some sort of a conscience after all, was suggested by the fact that a few days afterward he disappeared from his London premises and from his usual haunts. So far as I know, nothing has been seen or heard of him since. Whether he was afraid that other shady transactions in which he had had a hand would be brought home to him, or whether he was haunted by memories of the dual tragedy for which he had been, at any rate in part, responsible, I cannot say. The fact remains that, so far as the police can learn, large sums of money, which at the time of his disappearance were due to him, he has never made the slightest attempt to claim. As the two brothers were the last of their race, and no one has laid claim to Philip's estate, in due course it reverted to the crown. It is among the large number of those for which heirs at law are still wanting. Old Morley and his wife had not been in a good service for so many years for nothing. They would have retired from it long before had it not been for antiquated notions of fidelity. Their master's death found them comfortably off and in the possession, as it turned out, of a little property among the Surrey Hills. On that property they are residing to this day. When it first came into their hands, the neighborhood was wild and rural. Others, since, have discovered that it was beautiful. Building is taking place on every side. Quite a town is springing up. Though this materially adds to the monetary value of their property, the old couple are a little restless amidst their new surroundings. Hume is still unmarried. He becomes less and less engaged in the active practice of his profession, but he remains an authority on the obscure diseases of the brain. He has written more than one book upon this special subject. I have not read them. 
I am no reader, and such works would, in any case, be hardly in my way. But I understand that he seeks to show that we are, all of us, more or less mad, and that he goes far toward the proof of this thesis. He has not materially altered his estimate of my mental equipment. Indeed, he once assured me that he was becoming more and more convinced that men whose physical and muscular development went beyond a certain limit were ipso facto mad, and ergo, I must be insane. However, we are tolerable friends, and he seems not unwilling to allow that I am as well out of an asylum as in. It has been rumored that Miss Adair intends shortly to retire from the stage, and the whisper is that Hume, who for some time has been her constant attendant, has something to do with her intention. In that case, they will make a well-matched pair. For my opinion, they both have tongues. Bessie. I think that at this point in these pages, I am entitled to call her Bessie. Bessie never acted again. After that hideous night, brain fever supervened. For weeks, she lay between life and death. More than once, the doctors gave her up. Fortunately, doctors are not omniscient. After all, God was merciful to me. Almost her first words, when the darkest hour had given place to the first glimmerings of dawn, took the shape of a question. Where is Tom? Her scamp of a brother. After all she had suffered for him, he was foremost in her thoughts. I hope that he is on the road to fortune. Looking up at me with her big eyes, which had grown bigger and sunk farther in her head, she asked me what I meant. I explained. I had supplied young Hopeful with a wherewithal which would enable him to seek for gold in what was then the new El Dorado, the Klondike region. He had started on his quest, but he never found what, at least nominally, he had gone to look for. Some months afterwards, I learned that he had died, fallen at night into the waters of the Yukon River, and been drowned. My correspondent went on to explain that he was dead drunk at the time, which explanation I kept from his sister. I did not wish her to think that his end had been unbecoming to a man. Bessie and I had been married just long enough to enable me to realize my happiness. I am ever slow, so I will not say what is the tale of the years which that statement implies, though the sight of our youngsters is apt to give away the secret of their father's dullness. There was no question between us of courtship. I knew as I watched by her bedside that if she came back to life she was mine, and that in any case I was hers. And so it was. So soon as she was strong enough, we were married, and we have been lovers ever since. As I sit, with her hand clasped tightly, watching her children and mine, I am sometimes disposed to suspect that our courtship is beginning. I know it will never cease. The goodness of God has been very great in giving me my wife. By what seemed accident, but was indeed the act of providence, I have come to have for my very own the woman of my dreams. Sleeping and waking, she is mine. So true it is that some men's good fortune is out of all proportion to their deserts. End of chapter 26 End of The Goddess a Demon by Richard Marsh